0: I was thinking of uh, this brother's prayer request he made for the nation. I was thinking about that as we were singing "A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I think all of us remember, with our ages that we have here, what we were doing on 9-11 uh, when those terrorist attacks occurred in, a, in the country. That was followed by a memorial service that was held at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., and of course, it was ecumenical, so that there were many different kinds of religions that were represented in that service. But they had selected this hymn to be sung during that service. And I just kind of raised my eyebrow and I thought about that. I thought, this is really a good thing. But for their purposes, they deleted verse 2. And verse 2 contains this line: Dost ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name, from age to age the same, and He must win the battle. Dear church, it is all about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the language of God. If you know Him, You commune with God. If you don't, there's no communication. There's no understanding. And if there's any hope for this country, any hope whatsoever, it has to be with the central message of the Lord Jesus Christ and His atonement that we talked about this morning. It's all about Jesus. That's why John begins his gospel account, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he's very clear in that chapter as it unfolds that he's talking about none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we pray for our country, don't simply pray that it changes, because it has no ability to change. We pray that the Holy Spirit would convict people of their sins. And drive them to the only answer that exists, which is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Never forget that. It is always about Christ. It's about Christ in Sunday school class. It's about Christ in preaching. It's about Christ when you're cleaning the bathrooms of the church. When you're doing your food bank ministry, other outreaches that you have, including your youth ministry. It's always about Christ. He is the beginning, and He is the end. So it's my privilege tonight to have a second message for you. This is a sermon that is structured differently than the one that I did this morning. It's not outlined the same. It's a portion that comes from Luke's Gospel out of chapter 5. Let me begin this way this evening. I want to ask you, what would it be like if our sins over the past month were replayed back for us today? What if if all of those scenes were caught on camera? For those of us that are old enough, we remember Candid Camera. It was usually a show on television, you know, where you had these candid shots of people that they had no idea that they were being filmed what if that was the case what if there was a transcript of our words that were said could be embarrassing to read could it not But words are bad enough but the camera does not lie where were we what location were we in what was the time of day of the particular sin. How long were we there? What was the duration? And what were we doing? What was the activity? Suppose you opened a piece of mail that stated notice of citation, violation processing at the top, and contained in that envelope was a camera shot of exactly what you had done wrong I had this experience my daughter and my son-in-law who is a pastor and pastoring a a Dutch area of farmers by the way up in northwest Iowa Uh, that county has this auspicious Notoriety being the number one hog-producing county in the United States. Farmers up there walk out of their houses, and they smell that odor going through the air and say, boy, it smells just like money. But that's where my son-in-law was pastoring for a number of years. Now he's in the Grand Rapids area. But we had to make long treks, my wife and I, to go out and see the family, a 13-hour trip all the way out across Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, and then all the way to Iowa, almost to the other side of the state, northwest corner of that state. Iowa was Egypt for me, because I had to go through Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and oftentimes the speed limit changed, and people are zooming by, and you don't always pick up on that. And so This one day I go to the mailbox and I open it up and here is this envelope from the Department of Transportation from the state of Iowa and I'm being cited for speeding. I was at a higher speed in a 55 mile an hour zone and there is the camera shot, the front of the car, the make of the car, the time of day and of course the rear end of the car with the license plate Everything is right there. What would it be like if our sins over the past month were replayed in this way? I think the final judgment will be like this. A detailed account of every infraction of the law of God. A continuous running replay of the mind of God. Can you picture that? It's terrifying. For everyone that is outside of Christ to be able to be looking at that screen and realizing every single aspect of what they said, what they thought, where they were, what they touched, what they heard, what they meditated on, all replayed for them. How could the citations for the breaking of the law be wiped clean? Outside of Christ, there's no solution. Today we want to look at the one who has the power to forgive sins. The one who can take the the citation and wipe it clean. Two portions of Scripture we're looking at in the Gospel of Luke, they run in consecutive order... And at a first read, they may seem to be disconnected. But I think that was not Luke's intent. I think they are put together for a particular purpose, and I hope to show that. I'll work you through the passage, and then I have six points that I want to call to your attention as we look at applying what we're learning. Pick it up at chapter 5. We read at verse 12 of the Gospel of Luke these words. While he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he ordered him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on, um, carrying on a bed a man who had been paralyzed and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts this way? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. They were all struck, with astonishment, and began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear, saying, We have seen a remarkable thing this day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin to focus our attention on your word this evening, we acknowledge once again it is your word. It is not a word of God, it is the Word of God. We pray that you would bless it to our understanding. Please take over these very imperfect lips to communicate what it is that you have for your saints this evening, and may they carry it forth into their various responsibilities that they have in the upcoming week. We pray that you would be honored and glorified during this time In Jesus' name, amen. So in verses 12 to 16, we have this story about a man who was afflicted with leprosy. Jesus heals him, which is a remarkable thing. But even before that took place, Something else happened that was an incredible event. The extraordinary thing here is that Jesus touched him. He touched him before he healed him. The biblical term for leprosy refers to a wide range of skin ailments, some cases were fatal. Extreme forms are known today as Hansen's disease. Alfred Edersheim, in his Life and Times of Christ, writes this about it. He says, in rabbinic teaching, leprosy was second only to contact with a dead body in terms of defilement. Not merely actual contact with the leper, but even his entrance defiled a habitation and everything in it. To the beams of the roof, if even he put his head into a place, it became unclean. An unclean designation. It's actually articulated in the law. We have it in Leviticus chapter 13, beginning at verse 45. As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, and the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Add to this that God himself used leprosy as a curse for particular sins. We have that in the case of Gehazi. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 5, and we also have the count of King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. People with this disease were reviewed as cursed by God. One writer puts it this way, this miserable and humiliating form of apartheid must have had a severe psychological effect. In addition to whatever physical discomfort they suffered, people in leper colonies were segregated from society. They were socially unacceptable and ceremonially unclean. They were not allowed to have any human contact. So if they survived at all, it was only by the charity of people who would leave them a little food but would not come anywhere near them. Michael Whitlock, in his commentary, notes this. He said that this leper was an outcast. He had not simply lost his health, he had lost his family, his friends, his home, his livelihood. No one would indeed, no one was allowed to even to associate with him. In a word, lepers were untouchable. Now, Luke notes in verse 12 that the man's case was severe. Quote, verse 12, a man full of leprosy. Jesus then stretches out his hand and touched him in verse 13. Now, Jesus frequently did this. We have it in a number of places in Luke 4, Luke 7, Luke 13, Luke 22. Mark records it as well in chapter 6. Jesus touching in individuals to heal them. But in this case, he touches the man before he heals him. That was the first thing that would have been extraordinary about this whole thing. One was, what is this guy doing being lowered into their home with this kind of problem? Excuse me, I'm getting that confused. What am I doing around this person being with him with this kind of extraordinary disease? And secondly... What in the world is this teacher doing in touching him? We note here, the healing was immediate. There was no extended recovery period. And he was told to go to the priest and to show himself because this is how a leper was to be re back into society. Verse 14 notes, Jesus said, tell no one. For the moment, Jesus desires to hold down the exuberance. Then we note that he retreated into the wilderness to pray, a lonely place, the text says. In verse 16, Jesus was always re-energized or invigorated by spending time alone with God rather than with men. That's the account of leprosy. I'm going to leave that now and move into the next account of this man being healed, this paralytic, but we will return to it at the end. We move on to verse 17. It says, One day he was teaching, and there were some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there. They'd come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Now, the Pharisees are noted here. There are three major Jewish sects that are featured in the Gospel of Count. The Pharisees is one of them. I'll deal with them in a second. The second was the Sadducees. This was the wealthy, priestly, elite class, basically uh, based in Jerusalem. The third were the Zealots. These were political revolutionaries. The fourth were the Essenes. They were ascetic monastics. The Pharisees, though, were very common in the countryside. The Sadducees were mostly located in uh, Jerusalem, they ruled the Sanhedrin, but the ones that were closest to the people were the Pharisees who were in charge of various synagogues throughout Palestine. The word Pharisee derives from the Hebrew meaning to separate. That is, they had such a zeal for the Mosaic law, they were to separate themselves from anything or anyone. That was not in keeping with their understanding of that law. We note here that in Galilee, Judea, and even Jerusalem, the text is noting that there was a growing knowledge of Jesus' instruction and his ability to demonstrate signs. Verses 18 to 19, and some of the men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed They were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of Jesus, but not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. The man here is paralyzed through birth or an injury, we're not sure, we don't know. He is not ostracized from society as was done with the leper, but he certainly has an inability. Verse 20, seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Once again, friend, your sins are forgiven you. This is indeed the shot that would be heard around the world. If people were sitting there and listening, I can see the kind of scuttlebutt that was going on there. They might have their legs crossed. Perhaps they're kneeling or or, uh, uh, they're on their knees. They're before Jesus. They're crowded around, maybe shoulder to shoulder. You could just see someone turning to another. What did he say? I I think he said he was going to forgive his sins. All religions are not the same. Here is another example of Christianity's uniqueness. The power to dispense with sins because of Jesus himself. It is unique. You don't find this in Islam. You don't find this in Buddhism. You don't find it in Shinto or Hinduism. Or in dozens of cults that we find around the globe and even here in North America. There was a greater need here beyond physical healing. Luke is drawing the reader now to the heart of the gospel. We touched on it this morning. We talked about justification and sanctification, that they are distinct They're separate, and yet when you see one, you see the other. They come together in the gospel. He is drawing us to the heart of the gospel. It is the power to forgive sins. Verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man? Who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus' declaration here is like a lead balloon going over on the Pharisees. Their problem was not only that God could forgive sins, it's a bigger problem. They failed to recognize that God incarnate was there. Verse 22 and 23. But Jesus, aware of their reasoning, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts which is easier to say your sins have been forgiven you or to say get up and walk well which is easier his point is that forgiving of sins is far greater but if you need proof i'm going to heal you that is something you can see with the naked eye but what i am concerned about primarily is what you can't see with your eye The darkness of a soul. The soul that has the blackness of sin. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Verse 24. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. And immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God and were filled with fear saying, we have seen a remarkable thing this day. Jesus had connected his power over the effects of sin with his authority over sin's guilt. Now, listen carefully. It's just not the expunging of sin that takes place in our justification. In the atonement, there is the removal of our sin, our wrongdoing. That is taken away. That is symbolized with that first goat. its Life is extinguished. The blood is taken from that animal, and it is moved through the tabernacle, through the outer court, into the inner sanctuary, and into the Holy of Holies, and poured on the mercy seat, the forgiveness of our sins. But don't forget, there's a second goat. Then the high priest would lay his hands over that goat that lived, and he would speak the sins of the people on top of that goat. The goat was the scapegoat. That goat was led out of the camp, over hither and yon, never to return of. The point here is, this is our guilt being removed. It's one thing to say that your sins are forgiven, and it's another thing to have the sensation of guilt taken away. Jesus had connected his power over the effects of sin with his authority over sin's guilt. Note here as well that there is astonishment or fear. The Greek word here is phobos, from which we derive in English phobia. It can refer to even long-term sense of anxiety. I mean, the people were, they were astonished. But there's also a sense here of like taking a step back. They were, they were fearful. This is a, once again an encounter with the holiness of God. And when people encounter the holiness of God, it's not like, hey, let's get together and have a party. People start backing up. There's a sense of reverence about it. There's something powerful here. There's something otherworldly present. It's like being close to a railroad when a, a great train is coming down the tracks. And even though someone knows the train is on the tracks, still with it coming down, there's a sense in which people back up, they move because of the respect of the power and the might. People note here in verse 26, we have seen a remarkable thing this day. This was no doubt extraordinary. The extraordinary had invaded the ordinary countryside of Palestine. What happened in front of us this day? So there you have it. You have two stories that begin, one with a healing of leprosy and another one of a man who had been paralyzed so bad that he had to be carried around on a stretcher. Now here are six points that I would like for you to meditate on. Even use them at home with your family for times of devotional reflection. Number one, leprosy is a visible expression of an inward depravity. I think this is why Luke is introducing the healing of the paralytic with the healing of the man with leprosy. Leprosy is something you see with your eyes. But there's something else going on here. It is an outward or a visible expression of an inward depravity. Note this, that there is something about human disfigurement That is abhorrent to the human race. That's particularly so when we have those in our number who have been disfigured in the face. I mean, our hearts just go out to people like this. That their facial uh, uh, characteristics have been distorted by some type of disease. Some of you might remember the the movie Braveheart that was done by Mel Gibson. There are glimpses in there about Robert the Bruce and his father, and his interaction with his father. His father is held away, secluded, because he has leprosy. And as you see these different vignettes in the movie, you can see the progression of the disease in the father's face as he becomes more and more distorted, because of the disease. And it's repugnant when we see that. R.C. Trench, the Greek scholar, noted in regards to leprosy, it is an outward and visible sign of an innermost spiritual corruption. The sense here is that our depravity... Is a disfiguring disease which distorts the person God created us to be. Except you don't see it with your eyes. We're talking about the soul. The soul being distorted because of sin. Remember Paul's declaration in chapter 7 of Romans wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And oftentimes that's exactly how lepers looked. They looked like death walking. When you read the newspapers and watch the news or listen to radio programming that depicts the atrocities of man, it is leprosy of the heart and its progressive nature that is far greater than the stories about the axe murderer or the beheadings that are done by a terrorist group like ISIS or the shootings that we hear about in Flint, Michigan or in Chicago, Illinois or the shootings that take place in some of our grade schools around this country. Worse than that is the leprosy of the soul, the unsaved soul. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said lepers were treated, quote, as if they were, in effect, dead men, end quote. That's exactly what Paul said we were. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Ephesians. And you were dead in your transgressions. And sins. Beloved, there's a far de- greater difference between being sick and being dead. A sick person with the last energy they have left within them can still crawl along a floor, nudge themselves up, grab a phone, and dial 911 for help. But a dead person does nothing. A dead person makes no call for help because they don't even know they're dead. And this is the description of what we have regarding mankind. An illness that is so bad. There's a story that is told about Malcolm Muggeridge. Malcolm Muggeridge was a writer, kind of a carmudgeon kind of a guy, but he tells a story about his own life, that he was on a tour, and he was in India, and he was on a beach. He's out in the water, and of course there are men and women that are bathing in this beach area. And he looked in front of him and he sees the form of a young girl. And he was attracted to the form of this girl's body. And so, in a subtle kind of way, he's maneuvering himself in the water so that he could get closer and near to examine her a little more carefully. It was actually eye candy. And Muggeridge, with great detail, talks about him walking and maneuvering through the water and getting up close, and as he was getting near the girl, she had decided to turn around and exit the beach, and when she turned, Muggeridge became as a piece of stone, because when she turned, he saw that she was a leper, and her face was horribly disfigured. And in a split second, Muggeridge knew that was what his heart looked like. As he looked at the horror of what he saw on this young girl's face, he was looking at the inner disposition of his own soul. That's what it is like Every day for the unbeliever. And that is why every day is a great day for those of us who know that Christ has forgiven us of our sin. Number two. We note here that men were so concerned that they brought an ill person to Jesus. They brought an ill person to Jesus. What people need today is a direct encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. There was an obstacle in the way. These men had brought this individual in on this stretcher. They want to get him to Christ. They can't get to him. So they we well, get up on top of the roof we'll remove ceiling towels and allow them him to be brought in and laid down in front of the Lord Jesus. They did not let the obstacle of the crowd or even the house which was not theirs to hold them back from bringing this man face to face with Jesus Christ. How many obstacles do we not deal with in a day's time and consequent, consequently prevent an encounter with those around us with the Lord Jesus Christ? The little things get in way of our divine evangelism. Uh, I, I just don't have the time to talk about Christ. Oh schedule is such it's not convenient for me to be able to do this Oh I just don't have the right words I don't I don't know what to say These men became reckless They became reckless to the point of destroying someone else's house to bring this person with an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes to Corinth in this way, second letter, chapter 5, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. When was the last time we begged someone to be reconciled to God? I beg you. I beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. These men stopped at nothing to bring the Lord Jesus face to face with this individual The only hope he had. We know the truth. We know it. We live among the walking dead. Those that are outside of Christ are still dead in their sins. The leprosy of an internal corruption of the soul is still present. They are one heartbeat away from meeting their worst nightmare, which is to stand before a God who recounts everything about their soul. Who do you know that needs Jesus Christ? It could be a family member. It could be a neighbor. It could be a person in the workplace. They stopped at nothing. Philip Reichen writes, he says, to what lengths are you willing to go in in order to introduce them? I beg you. In behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Number three. We note here that the viewing of remarkable things did not convince many of Christ's deity. Which is interesting. The Gospel of John makes this point in chapter twelve, verse thirty-seven. But though he performed so many signs before them, they were not believing him. Paul wrote to Corinth, first letter, chapter 1, verse 22, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. Herein lies the pathology of sin. Paul said it well when he Explained this to the Ephesian church, chapter 2. I already referenced it once. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all lived in the lusts of our flesh, Indulging the desires of our flesh and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. They're dead. The normal response when you take on setting aside those obstacles in your life and presenting the gospel to those that are around you, the normal response is, I don't want it. Once more, I don't need you telling me about it. It's when they say, tell me a little more. You begin to wonder, maybe the Holy Spirit is stirring in them. Because they have no ability to make themselves alive. They're dead. It takes the power of God to breathe life into their soul. But you never know when God is going to take your words and bring flight to them and strike a chord within someone's dead heart. And all of a sudden they awaken. Oh, it's not you. It's not your great ability to articulate the things of the Scripture. It's not your perseverance. It's the power of God that it begins to awaken somebody. The normal response, even in the face of miracles, is, not interested, I gave it the office. Don't be surprised that that is what you're up against. Don't be surprised when you are alienated because of that. That's the normal response. But it's where we all came from. Paul to Corinth, second letter, chapter 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing In whose case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. Beloved, do you understand that? That if you get it, if you have light in your life, it's because God brought it in. Otherwise, we'd all be dead. Some of you have had the benefits of a heritage of faith. There was a long history of family where grandparents were believers. Their parents were believers. It's passed on to the children and the children's children. That is the model within Scripture. But make no dot about, about it. No matter which way that happens, even in the home or passed on generationally or out on the street corner, it's only God that awakens a person to say, I want Christ to be the Savior of my life. I need forgiveness of my sins this day. Number four, we note here that Jesus would often slip away to the wilderness to pray. Chapter 5, verse 16. But Jesus himself would often slip away into the wilderness to pray. Lonely places. Lonely places. In many of my messages over the years, I have touched on this. That even in families and marriages that are in concert with one another, they're, they're all, it's a Christian home, it's a Christian marriage that even with the closeness of those relationships in the church, in the family, that particular challenges, trials, tribulations that we encounter in our lives, there are times that you can be in a room full of people and you're still alone. Oh, the people around you, they love you. They're concerned about you. But at night when you close your eyes, You're alone in all of your thoughts. I think there's a paradoxical point that's going on here. My experience with people is that when they want re-energizing, they seek out people and not God what I want you to understand is Jesus did exactly the opposite. When He needed re-energizing, He went to God. He went in His aloneness to God. Brothers and sisters and relationships that we have They have a place, and I'm not diminishing that, but I am pointing out here that real empowerment comes in the aloneness of our thoughts when we hear God through His Word. And a lot of times, you can't hear that when you're around a room full of people no matter how much they identify with the pain and the hurt that you might be in. Psalm 73, I referred to it this morning. At the end of that psalm, whenever the the author has been way off on a tangent of what he shouldn't be thinking, he got his senses back, and he ends by saying, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all His works. That no matter what we're encountering, whatever that is, whatever fear or anxiety that that is producing, all the more I'm pulling in tighter to God. This is my refuge. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Go home. You Go home. Home will always have something to do with being at the feet of Christ. Go home. Number five, we note here that this man that is healed, he carries that which represented his infirmity. The very thing that defined him, which was the stretcher. We are enabled to do the same. We are no longer slaves to that which imprisoned us. So what was the sin? Was it was it pornography? Was it alcohol? Was it drug addiction? Was it food? Was it past memories of wrongdoing either to you or what you did to others? Was it a hurtful tongue? Was it love for money? The man carried away that which represented his infirmity. We lead now with that which was our infirmity. Whatever our weakness had been, that becomes the thing that levels the playing court to talk to others about Christ. Yes, I was a sinner. This is my life. You know what I was doing last year, ten years ago? You know what I was all about? lead with that. The man took home that which represented his infirmity. We lead with it. And finally, Jesus speaking here, I am willing your sin are forgiven. The videotape was erased. The camera that had shot and remembered for all antiquity everything about our lives that was wrong, every sin, Every thought, wherever our feet carried us, whatever our hands touched that shouldn't have been touched, whatever our ears heard that they heard, what our eyes looked on that shouldn't have been seen, what our tongue said that should have never been said, and what our minds meditated on, the tape is erased. My greatest problem in life is solved. Once again, it's a good day. Even on the moment you receive the worst news in this world, it's a good day. Because everyone, everyone will be at that throne. Standing before God. And for those who don't have an advocate, they're going to stand there and the mind of God replayed again and again and again. But for the beloved in Christ, our tape is erased. Jesus has the power to make people clean and whole. He has the power to restore the soul, reconnect relationships, and heal diseases. One writer puts it this way, whatever healing we need, whatever sin is troubling our our conscience, whatever sorrow is grieving our hearts, whatever relationship is making us anxious, Jesus is able to touch the hurting places of our lives and make us whole. And then he sends us out into the world to touch the hurting places in the lives of others, including all the people with all the problems that most people don't even want to touch. You know, there's a lot of times when it comes to evangelism, we're like, I'm not talking to him. <laughs> I'm not talking to her. I know what kind of guy that is. I know. And I'm not going to go there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch that guy with a 10-foot pole. There's nothing more dark in that person's soul of sin than was in ours apart from Christ. you got to know that. It's not more difficult for God to bring the worst sinner visibly to their knees as it was for somebody that looks like they're righteous and still doesn't know Christ. Jesus forgave you. Now go and tell others. You may have to destroy someone's roof to do it. More likely, you will have to destroy your own. When you're done, pay the owner for the damage and rejoice that you were enabling an encounter with Christ. There's a part in the "Star Wars" series. I think it was the second movie that was produced. You know you had this strange relationship between the hero, which is Scott, Luke Skywalker, and the dark villain, which is uh, Darth Vader. And they're actually related. And the villain knows that. And the good guy, Luke, has just come into the knowledge of that. And the father is trying to lead him more into the darkness. And he says to him at a at juncture in that film, Luke, you don't know the power of the dark side. I think about that when I look at this text. Because I think at times we don't realize the power of God to transform a dead soul. Something as hideous as sin that distorts the features of the soul that God merely speaks healing and wellness enters. For His glory and His praise. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I've been briefly amongst this congregation. I enjoy a warm fellowship. I, I sense that we're family. And I've just had great privileges of that, of different places that I've been, including even outside of the United States. You can be with people a very short while, and you realize you're part of the same family. We're part of the body of Christ. I sense that with this church. I now, I now pray for them again, Lord. I lift them up at this time. They're trying to pull together as a congregation. They're, they're seeking you with regard to their plans for a search for a man to fill this pulpit. I continue to ask in their behalf Lord that you give them guidance and direction. That Lord you would bring the right man to fill this pulpit and to build on what has taken place over recent years. I pray that you'd speak faith into their hearts so that they'd be able to trust you for what they cannot see at this time. Supply the wisdom and understanding and making that choice. But in addition to that, Lord, I lift them up at this time as we think about these two passages regarding the healing of sin. One, this distorted man. The Scripture says here that he was full of leprosy, the hideous nature of it, Lord. We we cringe and we think about that. We have a a minor blemish on our face and and for us it's it's something that we want to disguise. We want more makeup on. We want to do something to hide it. And yet what's being described here is the hideous nature of this disease which was really reflective of the hideous nature of a darkened heart in sin. I pray for them Lord that you would sign to them the richness of knowing their sin of leprosy has been healed. The videotape has been erased. They have right standing before you, not based on what they've done or will do, but based on what Jesus has done and what is He is doing in them. Give them rest and peace on that as they go forward in this week. Cause them to meditate on these things and take them to a lonely place. Take them to a season where they're removed from the clutter of the confines of modern life. And fill them with the knowledge of the power that took place in their own life to have forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' name, amen. this I don't know about the rest of you but wow that tape's been erased I don't know how many more of you got that from that message but I sure got it and I started with these two verses and I'm going to end with these two verses Psalm 9 I think that's why David we can say with David I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart I recount all of your wonderful deeds I will be glad and exalt, excuse me in you I will sing praise to your name, Almost High. What a, what a wonderful joy that that tape has been erased. We're going to close with a song, number 210 in the blue. Number 210 in the blue, we'll sing all four verses.